Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Data, analytics, big data, data science, machine learning, customer insight, behavioral science, blockchain, data ops, data engineering, agile working, phew, too many terms, too many things to think about. Do you as a leader need somewhere to turn, to hear what other leaders are doing, to hear what really makes a difference in your business? Welcome. The Customer Insight Leader Podcast is here for you. Each episode, we'll be interviewing a different leader in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics to hear what they really do, what really makes a difference. So settle down, get that cup of coffee, and enjoy the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast, a place to hear from today's leaders in the fields of customer insight, data science, and analytics. I'm your host, Paul Lachlan, and with me today is Charlie Ballard. Now, Charlie describes himself as a lifelong technology and data evangelist. He certainly has a long career of turning data assets into platforms for action and growth. He spent the first decade of his career leading measurement and analytics teams for digital agencies out there in Boston in the USA. Uh, working to evolve best practices with clients such as Comcast, General Motors, American Express. Then after receiving his MBA in Barcelona, very good, in 2012, uh, Charlie's led insight, strategy and measurement for firms like BT, TripAdvisor and now Meta, which I still think of as Facebook, creating global teams focused on transforming data into high value products, insights and new capabilities to significantly improve company growth and accelerate change. You can hear from that description, uh, listeners, some of Charlie's drive and passion for this role. So I know he's going to be good to talk to. Welcome, Charlie. Thanks so much, Paul. It's great to be here. Good good to have you with us too. I I should let listeners know that I first met Charlie when he was chairing, sorry, when I was chairing the Data Leaders Summit in Barcelona many years ago. And and every time I've seen Charlie speak since, he's been really engaging, dynamic speaker. So there's your free plug, Charlie. Expect to have the speaking gigs flooding in anytime. Thanks. That's that's really kind, Paul. (laughs) No, you're welcome. It's very true. Anyway, let's crack on with my first question. Uh, in time on a tradition for regular listeners of this podcast, I always start with asking my guests to give us their backstory. So, you know, listeners, where they're coming from, the, the experience they've got to draw on. So, Charlie, could you tell us a bit about your career story, particularly how you've developed as a leader through the different roles I referenced? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, before I start, I also just want to say that if anybody ever gets a chance to hear Paul in person, he's likewise extremely dynamic moderator and very fun to listen to. So I encourage you to attend. Um, Thank you, Charlie. That's very kind of you. I think for 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 my own personal backstory, um, I was in school at uh, Georgetown University down in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but ended up having double majors in psychology and economics, which seems a little random. But I at the time I thought if I could cover um, how money works and how um, how people work, that I'd probably have my bases covered. Um, <laughs> nice and. Uh, it turned out that the, the one thing that those two degrees had in common was statistics and experimental design, um, mm-hmm. you know, really thinking about outcomes and how to prove them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, with that in mind, I ended up um, at Forrester Research for a couple of years uh, and then ended up working for two big digital agencies in Boston um, that really got me into thinking a lot about measurement, testing and learning. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it, it went so well there at the at one of the startups I was at that um, two friends of I of mine and I that were working together thought we could we could strike out our own and create our own agency. And I went out to get the uh, get an MBA in Barcelona because they had a 12 month offering. And I thought I could do that quickly and come back. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah, it was it was it was such a great experience. The MBA um, for anybody who's considering it was 180 students with 42 different countries represented and, you know, just such a wide range of backgrounds and thinking there. Mm. Um, But I ended up getting recruited to a summer internship for an MBA program working for BT. Um, at the end of the internship, they made me a full-time offer and I decided to not go back and stay in London. And so I had an amazing time uh, just doing telecoms consulting for BT for uh, just under two years, um, at which point uh, a friend of mine back in Boston uh, said that the, the global head of sales, the chief revenue officer of TripAdvisor, um, was looking to have somebody build a team focused on data, uh, data insights uh, and consumer trends. Um, and so I, I, I jumped at that job, uh, was very fortunate to have about seven years there, um, helping to build up that team and that capability in the travel industry. Great. And then, as you could probably guess, the, the pandemics aren't the best thing for travel. So um, yeah. went through a little bit of a bumpy time there, but um, now, I'm, now I've landed at Meta um, after a bit of, of consulting on my own. And um, yeah, everything seems to be going pretty well again. Good, good. Glad to hear it. Thank you, John. It was a real, real canter through such a such a lot of experience. I, I suppose I just want to dig into it initially because I'm aware a lot of the guests that I have on this podcast, the majority, come for kind of data and analytics and, and data science kind of background. But there's beginning to emerge a, a cohort of you who, if I've read you right, as I hear you describe the work you'd have done with Forrester and the degree background you've had, come more from the kind of research side, probably kind of mastered effective market research and and research technologies first, and then grew into a wider data and analytics role. Is that how you'd see your background? Yeah, I I think that's actually really fair, Paul, and really insightful too. Um, You know, for those of of the listeners who aren't familiar with Forrester Research, um, they have a lot of really bright experts who write reports on a lot of topics, but they have one division focused on consumer research they call technographics. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they run um, huge global surveys every year with hundreds of thousands of, res- of respondents on consumers of all backgrounds. And they ask all these questions about what people are doing online, what they're interested in, what they want to do next. And they, were, uh, they were, were and are able to slice and dice that data and really start to see trends over time of what consumers are interested in doing. And so moving from that to Digitas in Boston, which was, um, you know, working with General Motors to to measure ad campaigns uh, and then working for Comcast and then TripAdvisor, BT, I had that survey background and experience. And every time that we were thinking about running a new initiative, thinking about trying some new capability, I kept thinking, well, let's let's survey some people on this. Let's ask ask some questions Mm -hmm. and find out if this is something that people want. And that's always been a really great layer to add to things that I think gets missed way too often in business. Companies say, hey, let's try this great new product. Let's let's try this really interesting new initiative. But they usually have a ton of customers there who would be very willing to give their thoughts about the product, but they don't bother talking to them first. And I think that, that that's, a, that's an opportunity that we could do a lot more of. Yeah, you know, completely agree, Charlie. In fact, I was thinking as I was kind of reflecting on on your background and, and conversations we've had before to, to ask you about that, because I suppose I feel that it sometimes feels like 
the label I'm using of customer insight leader is, is covering two quite separate tribes. You, you tend to talk to insight and research people and they're, they they're more commonly have a kind of psychology uh, background, um, dabbling into quant more, needing to get their head around wider use of behavioral data, et cetera, but very much seeing themselves kind of excluded from the, from the other tribe that are becoming increasingly data science centric. Um, the analytics gets more and more sophisticated, maybe some are going into the data engineering side, but not enough cross-pollination in my view. And I, I wonder whether you think that now that you've come into a role over many years, where you're doing such a lot, leading such a lot of analytics, designing what I would have called database marketing, et cetera. Do you think you benefit from that consideration you explained of research surveys, customer insight as a source of knowledge in a way that maybe a lot of the leaders who've always been in the data science analytics tribe just don't think about? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, Paul. Um, you know, I think I think we have this this challenge today in the data insights and analytics worlds, where we kind of have this this wall or siloing between people who work on the business problems and people who work on data science. Um, and you know, data scientists, there's there are absolute geniuses out there, and they're doing such incredible work, and they're getting better and better at it every day. Mm -hmm. And then you have senior business leaders that are thinking through what products we should launch, which audiences we should target. But they, they often have trouble talking to each other. Um, and there's a translation layer that's all often missing there. Um, and what I've, what I've always found really, really helpful in my career um, is to spend a lot of time talking to the business leaders about what their, what their needs really are. Uh, from a pure business point of view, and, and try to do that thing where you're, when you're listening to somebody that you can paraphrase what you've heard them say back to them, and they say, yes, that, that's what I meant. Yeah. And then yeah. once you understand the problem, try to take a look at all the data assets that you could have access to. So the most obvious thing, which is what you're referring to right now in terms of data assets is um, internal databases that people are already accessing, that you're getting all your Tableau reporting out of that, that are very useful. Yeah. But then for data assets, what about other databases internally that might exist that you haven't tapped into yet? Is there anything in there that you might want to use? Mm. Um, or, um, but then there's external data that you could be pulling in, whether it's running a survey um, to customers that are to potential customers that you haven't uh, targeted yet. Yeah. Uh, it could be running a survey to your existing customers who might have something to say about you. you know, th there's an unlimited number of assets that you could find or create, and you need to have them all lined up as part of your storytelling arsenal if you're going to really do the best job answering the, the, the problems with good solutions. Absolutely agree, Charlie. Wow, you've opened up some interesting avenues of conversation there. So first, let me completely affirm, I, I completely agree with your point there. I think um, that conversation with the with senior stakeholders, that, that engagement, no doubt benefiting from your psychology and economics background understanding in your MBA as well, I, I think that's so vital. I, I spend so much time with the more pure data and analytics leader kind of background, encouraging translator skills, encouraging domain knowledge among the, the analysts and that the fluency in senior business stakeholder vocabulary and language among data leaders so that they can really, really be part of that conversation. And, and I completely agree with your point about thinking wider in terms of sources of data. I know it's come up actually in a, in a couple of other conversations on this podcast not excluding the idea that you might create new data, not being limited by thinking about that's what I've got in the database. So 
bit like the I've got a hammer, so I just see nails. I, I reduce every problem down to what can be solved with my known data, rather than expanding out to the to the to the wider kind of world and the the real reality of the problem. Gosh, I've opened up a lot there. Let, let's let's go with the first part. Um, am I right in my thesis there? I suppose that's a posh word for it, um, Charlie. That your your educational background and the MBA has helped you in those conversations with the senior stakeholders because you really speak their financial language. Yeah, I I, I think that I think it, the language is a really interesting topic, Paul. You've used that word a few times now, and I, I think I just said my answer translate. That we, we have all these different pools of, of stakeholders that all do different things, um, and they all speak slightly different languages. And I think that the more versatile you are, the more tools you have to speak multiple languages, the better off you're going to be. It might be an MBA that definitely helps to, to speak to senior stakeholders. But I think the more that you just put yourself out there in different groups and really get to know them, the more that you can learn to speak that way. Yes, yes. Good, good and, point. And, and, it's also not just hearing them, right? You have to be able to give them the answers they're looking for in a way that they can understand. And that might be even be the hardest part, mm-hmm. right? Um, if I could give an example um, of a project that I worked on that was really satisfying. Um, when I was at BT, I was on a rotational program and uh, I had three months working on, on one project and then I'd move on to the next one for three months. And I ended up working with BT's global head of human resources, um, working with the McKinsey team there. BT was really interested in culture change. Okay. And so they were, they wanted um, McKinsey to come in uh, and use a lot of their knowledge plus other knowledge to find ways to transform the culture at BT to be more fast, more efficient. Mm-hmm. You know, to just get things done faster and better. Sure. Um, and it was a great initiative. Um, and I was, I was fortunate to be able to be really working closely with the McKinsey team. But w- w- one thing we didn't have was any data that showed us where in the company we should begin. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those not familiar with BT, it's a, it's a holding company of six other smaller companies that operate all of the, um, uh, the internet backbone and a lot of the internet and television of, of the United Kingdom. Um, and so... Where do you begin with a massive culture change project? Well, I, I did the same thing where I was scanning the company and looking for assets of data. And I realized that the company had been doing quarterly surveys of, um, of all the 120,000 employees, asking them how satisfied they were with their manager, with their team. Did they have the tools they need to move fast? And nobody was using the data. Um, so I, I asked if I could um, take over the the, the big survey da- survey for the next quarter. Um, I looked at the questions and I threw half of them out and I, um, I added in questions that aligned with what McKinsey was trying to do. And suddenly we had numbers flowing in on which teams in the company felt they were most satisfied and which really ne- felt like they needed the most help. Mm. And I started showing these spreadsheets of all the data to the chief people officer and to the other CEOs and they didn't know how to, how to digest it, right? So there was a, there was the there was a translation problem of data to how do we how do we action this and, and where's the real problem where we should begin, and I had this idea why don't we why don't we color code the company hierarchy uh, based on which teams are most satisfied, so it quickly became very interesting that uh, if a team is based on all the people that report to one manager the group CEO had a very uh, satisfied group reporting to him and they were dark green, they were five out of five, right? 
Um, and then the teams reporting to, to that level were all, all dark green, five out of five, down three or four levels, all senior management is very satisfied with their role. Uh, but then there was this one gentleman over in one part of the company that was fairly red, you know, two out of five. And then the 20,000 people underneath that person were all red, wow. suggesting that one person was really a bottleneck to progress. And it instantly gave leadership that visual to zone in. So a lot, a lot of times, um, I think the translation is learning to find in ways to tell the story in as simple and, and visual way as possible. So that, that, that part ties into it, I think, quite a lot. Yeah, and that's a lovely example, Charlie. And I, I love the data visualization element of that as well. It's another uh, effective language to use our multilingual leaders kind of analogy. It's, it's yeah. a good example. Another thing I wanted to pick up on, and I guess it kind of flows still along this theme of uh, being a translator, being an effective influencer on the business side from, from the technical expertise, from the access to the, to the data sources. I'm aware a lot of your role and a lot of what we've talked about in the past is, is it been in designing effective marketing, measuring the effectiveness of different activities, that whole experimental design piece. Um, and I wonder how, given I've led those kind of teams before as well, I, I'm aware of the challenge that you do get senior stakeholders who have a sort of inbuilt resistance of the need to change. You know, they, they think they know how things go on around here and persuading those people that something needs to be tested when they just rather still go along with their understanding is, is quite a challenge, particularly if they're quite senior in the organization and, and maybe to use your last analogy, quite red. <laughs> I wonder <laughs> how, you've, how you've sold them. How have you used your, your multilingual business influence skills to persuade that type of senior stakeholder, blocker maybe we could call them, that there is a need to test something here? Yeah, I think, I mean, the biggest thing here in all of this, Paul, um, the heart of a, a lot of what we're talking about is building trust, right? Yeah. And we're all in all of our positions worried about our job, worried about seeing this is doing well. Um, and we won't want to be really perceived as, as an incredibly bright, successful person. But a lot of times the easiest thing to do um, to minimize risk is to is to do as little as possible. And, and obviously, mm -hmm. uh, do, changing nothing is often the healthiest thing to do, but sometimes it, it prevents the business from uh, from real growth. Mm -hmm. And so in order to take a senior leader that's blocking something. Uh, the bit that what you have to be able to do is, is create trust. And you also have to kind of put a little bit of fire under them to get them excited about what things could be for the alternative. Right. right. So AB testing is, is a fantastic way to do it because if you're, if you're seeing a senior leader, who's a blocker, you can, you can hopefully say to them, not only uh, I, I'm sure you're right. Um, yep. Let, let's let, let, I, I'm sure that the status quo is the way to go. But let's say that we just do one little test, one little pilot of, uh, of AB versus of comparing this new thing that we're thinking could work against the status quo. We'll see how that goes and how it comes back. And if, and if the new thing wins, well, hey, doesn't that make you look really good? Um, and I, I find, and, and if it doesn't, then great. We've just, you know, we've got a little proof in our pocket and we can, we can sleep better knowing that, um, that we didn't miss an opportunity. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the second step of that beyond proposing the, the small test or the AB 
um, is, is something that I find is missed way too often, which is doing a, a quick pro forma analysis for the leader to say, if this interesting new thing does win, and we make that a new part of our business, then here's how much additional revenue we might win that it's going to make you look really good in the next 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, do that math because, because doing that projection is not that hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you say, for example, um, our conversion rate on this marketing campaign for getting visitors to the site right now is at about 1%. But if we try some new landing pages or a new signup process and we get that up to 1.5%, 1.5%, that's not that big, but that's actually 50% more revenue for the same yes. marketing spend. That's enormous. Look, look what a hero we, you would be. Mm-hmm. So let, let's do a really quick test on that. And then they start dreaming of, of, of all that opportunity rather than the risk. Nicely described, Charlie, but very much confirmed that the power of that approach from my own experience as well. And I, I love hearing in your description how much psychology is involved, how much it is about thinking win-win with them, or almost um, sharing most of the glory with them, thinking about how you can position the change that you are seeking to prove from a from a data or an insight perspective as the benefits for them and how they can take the glory, they can lead the change. You're not so worried, although, of course, you're benefiting from from trust and reputation incrementally as you do it, but you're not so worried about taking all the plaudits here. You're building the reputation of someone who makes senior leaders look good. That's that's very canny, Charlie. I I commend it. Thank you. I think think that's right. I mean, that's that's the very old Dale Carnegie model of... Getting people to 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 feel like they they had buy in, it was their direction from the beginning. I do think that model has evolved a bit in the modern era. Mm-hmm. That because there is so much social um, social media in in terms of LinkedIn, if, in terms of internal company p- portals, mm-hmm. I think that there is you know my my philosophy had always been in the past. You don't need to take all the credit for it because people will know where mm-hmm. you know where the ideas came from. I think that more and more today, there is an element of needing to to promote the the work that was done, uh, and show, and give give the people who are around you the um, how the, how the process worked and um, and the other people that you want to thank for all the effort. Um, there's this, there's more of a self marketing angle surely yeah. now today, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's still about making other people look good and will always be. Yeah, and it's, that that's a great nuance charlie i think you're right to do it and i agree with you I, i've had to work with with a few leaders in that space on self-promotion reputation building for their team and the internal marketing that's needed i think you're right it's possible with finesse to balance both to both achieve the influencing in the moment with the senior stakeholder that leaves them feeling like this is their benefit their, their change and still use those case studies effectively to build the internal brand of your team and and buoy up and motivate your own people as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, I I want to go back, actually, if we can, to another part of the career story that you talked us through. Uh, Thank you. Is was that time of of working in in a startup, in effect, Um, and and clearly the benefits, the the excitement of of the change that you could bring there. And I, I guess I'm always conscious, and I've had a few guests on this podcast who've had opportunity to work in a startup uh, for some of their career, that it can be quite a frustrating listen for a number of the data analytics and insight leaders I know who work in large corporations, because 
oh, this thing's an oil tanker, it's slow to change, or, all, all that kind of stuff. Given you've kind of worked in, in both environments, really large corporations and the small responsive startup and agency side, I wonder what you've discovered you could take across. You know, what, what, what's worked to influence changing things quickly or changing things positively, maybe around culture as well, um, in large corporates that even if you couldn't quite make it like the startup, you've made it better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, 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 there's a lot, um, there's a lot to unpack in that question, right? Because I think, I think Paul, one, you're, you're, you're essentially talking about culture um, and, and how important culture is to, to, to all companies. Um, but culture can mean a very different thing in a startup versus a large company. I think every large company would like to feel like they have an entrepreneurial startup type culture, but that's <laughs> not always possible. No. Um, and, and having been part of an agency that, that I was leading measurement for 30 people that grew into 200 people, um, you know, it was it was one of the most fun times, most satisfying times I've had in my life. And we were able to propose really new things without any pushback because all the all the players were right there. And, and that's that's great if you have that opportunity. But that's kind of the easy, easy time. Yeah. Um, the, the bigger challenge is, is is what you're highlighting, which is how you make this big change in larger companies that aren't are, are built more to be resistant to problems and you know risk aversion for a large company is really important uh, mm-hmm. and they're they're built to not let um crazy things happen yeah um my experience coming in on larger companies um is is again going to be rooted in that trust it's going to be you're going to start off with with how can i make um make change that makes other people look good with with a small amount of lifting mm-hmm. um to to go full circle back to the first question about research and insights Hmm. I find that um, companies usually aren't using all of the research and insight subscriptions from outside vendors that they, uh, they're already paying for or maybe could yeah. pay for. And being a data insights guy, just creating a couple monthly updates with some of the great insights coming out of some of these subscriptions they use is, it is a way to really make impact and get people to notice you very quickly. Hmm. Mm. Um, and get some trust, especially if, if you don't just take the data and send it around, but put some real thought into how it could help different parts yeah, of the company. Completely. Right? Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think that, that everybody listening would probably understand that you want to you, you want to hopefully get a good project, prove yourself, um, get a bigger project and slowly iterate your, your way upward. Mm. Um, and th- that is always the way to go. But um, always be thinking of if I'm working on this project, is this going to help just this one senior leader? It's going to help answer this one question or are, is there a way that I could add a couple more fields to the database and add a couple more slides to the results deck and suddenly have this thing that I'm building be repeatable and useful to four or five different stakeholders? Mm-hmm. You know, how do I create a reporting platform that just doesn't, you know, a Tableau report that doesn't just solve one minute question, but what if I put another couple, 10 hours into it, and now it's solving five people's questions. Always look for that way to scale, right? Um, and then another, another thing that I found that really surprised me, but sometimes escalation and going a lot bigger than you originally planned is the best way to go. Um, I, I remember a time working for a pretty large company where 
I had um, had some engineers build out a set of reporting that I thought was going to be really useful for one particular sector. Hmm. Um, and um, the engineers built out the reporting, moved on to another project. We started sending the data out to clients. And the clients came back and said, this data is, the data is wrong. The numbers are, are don't make sense. Uh, this, this one th- number should be in the millions and instead it's zeros. It's broken. It was just broken. So I tried to get the engineers to come back and, um, and, and fix it. And they said, the data at the heart of it is, is too broken. We don't have time for it. We have to move on. And so I was left holding the bag with these clients that um, all wanted th- this thing to work. But we had completely dropped the ball. Mm. And so I spent three months trying to get another engineer to repair it, getting nowhere. And I finally did, did, did took a page out of Jeff Bezos's handbook. Um, and I, 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 I scheduled a really big meeting with the most senior people of engineering, of product, of marketing. Uh, I got all eight of them in the room. And I wrote a, a six-page memo. Um, so Bezos, apparently, before any big product announcement, uh, we'll have the product leader um, write a six-page memo, yeah. single space with everything that people in the room need to know. Yes. You know, the, the competition, the engineering, the hours, everything. And then they go in with a physical copy and they have everybody in the room spend 10 very awkward minutes reading it. Yeah. And at the end of the 10 minutes, everybody can have a really good conversation because nobody skipped the reading, right? Yeah. So I, I did this. I said, what if this product that I've been trying to get, what if it was 10 times bigger what would, what would it do for the company? What would be the forecast and projection? How many hours would it take? I need you guys to all help lead this thing, but it could, it could make us really big. Um, and they all sat down and read this thing, grumbling to themselves. <laughs> but they so finally were forced to see that this thing could actually be pretty cool. And immediately they all started discussing how they could run the thing and they, com- they all approved it. And now it's it ended up being one of the company's biggest platforms. So... I, I, I guess, you know, I, sometimes it's important rather than just saying this thing doesn't work. Maybe, maybe what, would it, what would it mean if you made it four or five times bigger and then get everybody excited about it? Wow. Wow. Yeah. And really interesting perspective. Gosh, you are a fabulous guest to have, Johnny. Thank you. Thank you for that. So let me latch on to a couple of things that are triggered for me. So delighted to hear that you used Bezos' approach. I came to it from it being recommended by Edward Tufty. Um, but I've, I've blogged before about the, the benefit of a silent start to a meeting with that study hall, as Tufty calls it. You've got the printed out material with the detail. Everybody silently reads it and you don't have the problem of being interrupted partway through your PowerPoint deck to get important knowledge across. All the questioning is then based on actually a common level of genuine understanding. And it's, it's simply a better way of doing things. So I'm d- delighted to hear you did that, Charlie. But I'm... Um, I guess I'm really struck by this idea that, that I kind of you guess you're communicating to us in two different ways of kind of think about adding more, think about going bigger as the solution for the problem. And I'm I'm struck how much often I find um, data analytics leaders have a prioritization challenge. They're not surprisingly in these days, uh, they've got more demand than they can they can cope with. And so needing to really prioritize based on alignment to the strategy, possible return on value, that that kind of stuff, different techniques possibly help them. And I guess you're right, what's maybe too rarely focused on is not just questioning to get to the need, but once you've got to the need, don't just prioritise based on that. Could you do more? Could you add more to it and give it a better ROI, a better, as you 
communicated it more people in the business that it helps and then actually that starts to shoot up the prioritization list so it's it's an even more proactive response to prioritization did you see it as that charlie that, that's exactly right, Paul. Um, look, uh, of course, the day-to-day -day job is going to require for any any data science, any analytics leader, uh, any leader, period, yeah. that you're going to have to do a lot of pruning and you're going to have to really think about, you know, I, I've got 30 different projects in the queue. How many of them am I realistically going to be able to do? Mm -hmm. I think that there's another type of pruning, though, that it's not always about taking 30 and deciding... I'm going to do 10 and which 10, but it may be taking a step back from the 30 entirely and saying, what if rather than doing 10, I only did two big ones mm -hmm. that, that rolled a number of them up into their, uh, their, their, their solution. You know, I, I was having a conversation with somebody recently about, you know, we could do 30 projects and it was actually the number was 30. But is that going to be more or less memorable and stand out and be useful to the company than if we did three incredibly well? Yeah, yeah. And and, and I think I think the answer for most people, I mean, certain roles, of course, you're going to have to do thirty. But for a certain position, having three that really stand out that do something new in an unusual way uh, is going to be a lot better received. Completely agree. Completely agree. And the degree to have that savvy of awareness on the reputation that you're building, the impact and the influence you're, you're creating. You do need hero projects. I, I can Hero projects, that. I love that. Yep, yep. I'm, I'm also struck by, I guess, remembering some of our past conversations over the years. Many of the achievements you've had, and you've had many, Charlie, I've often been struck by how good your personal network is. You know, you, you've had a number of successful projects where you've been able to reach out to someone in your network who's maybe got certain technical skills, collaborate with them. It's clearly been, I guess, boosted by the number of roles you've done in, in large organizations with good, good, capable people. But you must have done work over the years to, to nurture this, to build this network, maybe to prune it sometimes, like you say, as well, uh, to, to get such a kind of skilled, diverse personal network that, that's working well for you as a leader. I know, again, that it's something that a number of more technical leaders can struggle with. They can hate the thought of the word networking um, and not maybe be the more extrovert personality types that rush toward that. How would you advise them to, to work on this, to get to the stage where, like you, you've got such a rich relationship network to call on to help you succeed? Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, a lot of it, Paul, and thank you again, you're, you have very, very kind statements. Uh, a lot of it comes from um, just the, the that I've been fortunate enough to, to have a lot of different um, industries and projects mm. to work on and different types of people that I'm exposed to in the in the multiple roles that I've had in multiple countries. You know, um, being at a startup in, in Boston, um, you're working with everybody from every background every minute of the day, right? Your VP yeah. of technology is, is at your desk right, right next to the head of sales five minutes later. Um, and then being at BT, being on a rotational pro program, um, and then TripAdvisor, fantastic company. And I got, got able to see um, all different types of people and, and what they do and how they work together. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think that um, it, it, it's, just a, it's just a muscle that you build. Um, you know, one of the things I, I used to like to do was just try to uh, invite different people uh, I met to lunch every day. Let's just let's just grab some food. You know, there was a, a amazing data scientist um, that I, I worked with at one point who 
um, who was a former uh, nuclear physicist in Russia. And um, he was building just one amazing algorithm after another. Um, I knew nothing about that. And he was, he was a great one to befriend to understand the, um, just the basics of, of what, 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 what companies go, to, go through and expect from data science. Mm-hmm. But I think from my role, um, and it may not be true for all your listeners, but I've really enjoyed most of all being a bit of a traffic cop in that um, I love learning about all these different expertise and then trying to, to connect them with each other to create value, yeah. right? Yeah. And some people are really good at one specific as, um, aspect of data science, and that's fantastic because they're invaluable. But while you know, I, I'm never going to be the best um, coder in Python and R or R in the world. Um, you know, I've been really trying to focus on how to bring those different different types of people together, and then I really enjoy when I see them connect and begin to get value out of each other. Yeah, nice. Now I'm thinking of metaphors of of, of conductors as well, but I see what you mean by a by a traffic cop and it's, it feels again I think it may be a bit of a, a theme over these many of these podcast episodes it's kind of the triumph of the polymath that there is a role both because there were good data leaders who've got immense technical depth in their specialism as well but there's definitely a, a cadre of leaders who are who are just interested in so many different things and and like you say some of those leaders who love connecting people, love joining the dots. I think it's a very human aspect of the scientific mindset in some ways, isn't it? We we look for patterns. We like to connect and join and collaborate with people to solve problems. Very commendable, Charlie. Nice advice. Thank you. Well, thanks so much, Paul. Yeah, I really appreciate that. You you have so many great terms that I'm uh, I'm writing them down for reuse. <laughs> good, good. It's the frustrated author in me, I think. But one day I will write. Um, Okay, sadly, we are coming toward the end of your time. It's, it's been, been great to chat to you, Charlie, but I want to finish with asking a question on behalf of those who are looking to focus on their development. It's a theme I like to champion in this podcast, whether they're a more senior or, or junior leaders, kind of just starting with some of those challenges. You've invested a great deal in your personal development over the years, Charlie demonstrated by the MBA and, and, and the love of learning. I, I know you've communicated a few times. I wonder, where's your focus now? People, I don't want people to listen to this and think, oh, Charlie was on the podcast. He was the finished product. I'm sure you're still looking to develop and grow. Where's your personal development focus at the moment? Yeah, just, I was thinking through that one. Um, I th- I, I'm still convinced, and this is, this is just touching, trying to bring together everything we've talked about. I'm still convinced that, uh, businesses today have a, uh, a huge opportunity uh, in connecting the business side of their world with the, with the data science side of things. Mm-hmm. I find that data science is becoming incredibly powerful and they have so many tools in their toolkit and they, they do such great work, um, it, but that they often just aren't speaking well enough with the, the, uh, with the senior leadership. And I and I'm fascinated with solving that problem and how the how the tools can come into place to help with that. It all comes down to simplicity. How do how do both sides make their needs and their offerings as simple as possible so that matchmaking can be done? But I find that there, there's a lot of satisfaction in that. Um, and then you know uh, another piece about it is flexibility. Um, data science. Can, can be very flexible and solve really interesting new problems every day. But there tends to be often in some places a complacency that if I just set up a suite of reports, 
then that's all we need to really worry about moving forward. And I, I think I think the whole constant debate of um, should my company's uh, analytics organization be hub and spoke? Um, in the there's a central central analytics team with different analysts sitting on different pods, or do you want a central core team that takes requests and does different services? And how does that look? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's new forms of technology that are layering into that, and we're going to have new types of data very soon. You know, as um, as my current employer is very focusing on building out the metaverse and what is that kind of data mm-hmm. going to look like? You know, we're not going to run out of problems to solve soon. Um, but I think that the biggest problem for me is is figuring out that translation that we've been talking about the whole time and how to how to be uh, how to make the most of that. Brilliant. Thank you. Th- thank you, Charlie. But thanks for your thoughts. Many thanks for your time today. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks so much, Paul. Real pleasure to talk to you, too. Have a great one. Great. And thank you everyone for listening. I hope you found that helpful. Continue to listen to the Customer Insight Leader podcast. More great interviews coming up. And each week, there's also fresh content on our blog, customerinsightleader.com. So you might want to check that out too. Before then, it just remains for me to say once again, thanks everyone for your time. Have a great week. And perhaps just before you go, take a little bit time to reflect on what are you going to take away from this conversation charlie shared a great deal with us we talked about that power potential of going bigger with a problem thinking of other data sources beyond the ones that you might be traditionally focusing on and that whole translation role as as charlie mentioned at the end there and the, the focus there on speaking business as well as technical out of all the tips what's one thing that you could start to put into practice that might be a good place to start so goodbye everybody and thanks for your time again Bye for now.